Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hey, Soph. How are you? Good, doll. You're looking very bright this morning. Oh, thank you. I've whipped out my green just for you. Oh, I love a bit of green. How was your weekend? Good. It's been busy. I was. I went on a little holiday with my family, and then I to and from yes, you to did. Melbourne to go to this old school event thing with my mum and my dad. And I worked out. It has been thirteen years since I left school. That's old. So I have been out of school the same amount of time that I was in school. Oh. That's like nine months in, nine months out, <laughs> which is a crock you should of take shit. a photo. But I know, but I was like, God, the amount I learnt and the amount I did in that thirteen years. What the hell have I been up to in the last thirteen years? I don't feel like I've learnt anything. Anyway, it was weird to be back there. I don't know if anyone else has been back to school like a decade later. The proportions are all wrong. Yeah, like I was in like the quad area that we used to have lunch, and I was like, this used to feel massive and now it doesn't feel so was that it a reunion big. like a high school it wasn't a high school reunion it was um my drama teacher from when I was at school has retired and he worked there for 40 years and it was like a oh. celebration of his career and he was a really formative teacher for me I was I mean, I don't know if you can tell, but I was really into drama at school. Uh, Triple threat. Um, (laughs) Self-confessed. So, and I worked out. That has probably lent into the career I do now. Absolutely. You know, I like to say that I show up authentically, but this whole thing is really a performance. So (laughs) anyway, it was really nice. It was really nice to spend time with my parents without me subconsciously working out logistics of how I could handball my children Mm. off to them because my kids didn't come down with me because I was only there for 24 hours. So, yeah, that was quite nice to actually have a conversation with them and not be thinking, "Hmm, when can I disappear (laughs) and leave my kids with you? How are you? I'm good. I um went to the footy. How was that? As you do. Well, it was the first time we've taken all three girls and it was an AFL match. The first and the last. Yeah. yeah. It was an AFL match. And I've got to say, like, we the anxiety of a parent walking up a stadium when a whole stadium of people are looking down at you and you've got a toddler that is taking some steps and then a few steps back and you're thinking if you fall down these stairs. They're like concrete as well. It would be awful. And then they want to play on those stairs while you're trying to watch it. It just does not work. So I took them downstairs and I went outside and they found the fucking fairy floss machine and I'm like, oh, whatever. So I told the lady, I'm like, I know that you're doing really big buff head ones, but can you just tone it down and do like half size ones? And she's, yeah, 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 but you, you just have to pay the same. I'm like, oh, whatever, I don't care. Yeah, I'd pay more it's for a sugar one. Like, yeah. give me the smallest one, I'll pay $25 per oh, fairy floss. 100%. Anyway, so they had it. 
absolute sugar high. Funniest moment of this was mum went and bought hot dogs, as you do at a football. I had a, a beer in my hand. I just finished it. She goes to sit down and she's wearing a white singlet, falls, the hot dogs fall. <laughs> <laughs> all over her. With mustard, sauce and American mustard. American mustard, yeah. tomato sauce, sauerkraut, the whole work on her white singlet and all I could do was laugh my head off at her and she was on the ground looking and she was just like, oh, what if I had to go somewhere after this? I'm like, you are in a social setting right now. Like, what are you going to do? Anyway. Yeah, are you going to go somewhere else that you're surrounded by tens of thousands of people? Like, They'll be like, wow, she really went hard with those hot dogs. But no, it was exhausting. And then I woke up today and I was like, oh, my God, Harry, I think I've got like head lice. And he's like, no, I have it too. When we were putting Yumi on our shoulders, she was eating donuts and the sugar fell onto our heads and we've woken up today and it feels scratchy. I was thinking your dandruff's out of control. But this isn't even it. So this morning, and we're filming this today, this morning Harry goes, I've got to go down and collect something from the post office. And I'm like, can't it wait? And he's like, no, it can't wait. It's for you. And I said, okay, thinking, fuck, what could it be? Like I have no idea. Just quick interjection here. Could going to the post office be the worst adult task there is? With kids? Yes. No, even without kids. I never know what envelope do I need, what sleeve, oh, how much, much is a stamp nowadays? Are they going to judge me because I do a bit too much online shopping? <laughs> like the things that go through my head, when I get home and there's a slip that I need to pick something up from the post office, day ruined. Yeah. Day, could be a great day, day ruined. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave it at the door. Well, not as bad as when I walked into the bottle low last week and someone behind me walked in and she's like, oh, it was like a, a mum from school and she's like, oh, <laughs> it's Wednesday. And I'm like, yeah, hump day. We're all going for it. And she's like, yeah. And then the bottle o guy goes, oh, you here same time every day. And she was like, fuck, I can't come back from here. <laughs> he was actually talking about you. No, he wasn't. Um, anyway, so back to the story. Harry comes in and he's like, babe, I got this box for you. And I'm like, oh, babe, it's got pink coming out of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so Jade. I'm Harry. Okay, you're Jade. So Jade, right? Oh, Harry, right now is handding me Jade <laughs> a black Here, box with some pink tissue confetti coming out the side. You can flip it over. So I've got to flip it over. Cunt chocolate. Trigger warning. I'm about to say the word cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cunt like, chocolate. I know, I know. We had a few fair fights last week, but like, this is probably going a bit too far. Oh my god! So it says Museum of Old and New Art cunt chocolate, a hundred percent premium milk chocolate. Before you open it, we are going to Dark Mofo, which is like an art expo in, in Tassie. Tassie. So this is where it has come from. Open it up. Oh, it's quite a pretty vagina. Is that yours? Fuck no. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I don't know. I was giving you the benefit of the doubt that you have a tight little package (laughs) like that. Okay, so it is a moulded chocolate sculpture of someone who, who I don't know, someone's vagina. And I want to know, like, who are you? 
Who are you? Because in Mona, there is a wall of art of all these different vaginas. And do you like that I'm saying vagina? Yeah, and I know that you're know. putting every ounce of yes, concentration of the not F. saying vagina. It's vagina. Anyway. And um, I was saying we hadn't actually, learnt anything over the past 13 years. You have. I have, babe. I really You've have. Over the past few weeks, doll. <laughs> hey, this could be a mouse. Look. Yeah, so versatile. Dub- double click. Get it? Yeah, on the clip. Yeah. Um, but. When he gave it to me, I sort of gagged and, like, no disrespect to us all having vaginas, but it kind of makes it's me sick. It's not what you choose to eat. Well, I wouldn't eat that. Like, if I, I – I'm going to open it right now and I want you to have a bite. Yeah, okay. I'd say like, – You're I, okay with it. I'm okay with it. It's it's. – I'm not okay with it. Why? He's like, we could – It's dense. Like, that is a dense bit of chalky. But they've moulded that into someone's – no, they haven't. They have. No, but no one's vagina has pressed against it. Like, yeah, they've probably made a mold and then done all the chocolate in it. But like, no one, like, that doesn't actually have anyone's vagina on it. But I get what you mean. If that's not your flavor, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that- I'd eat it and be more inclined if it was a big dick. See, yeah. for me, for some reason, that's more off putting. No. Am I questioning everything? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it was so have weird. You have a lick. Have a, have a lick. On the have a lick. Oh, you don't want me to bite it? No, you can bite it. But ha- oh Give wow, look at her yeah. go, guys! This is going to have to be R-rated. Delicious. All right, settle down. Best pussy I've ever tasted. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer: It's the only one. I'm going to eat the back end. Oh, you're more the dirt road. Mm. Anyway, cunt chocolate tastes delicious, everyone. <laughs> All if right. that's what dick actually tasted like, my <laughs> husband would be a happy, happy man. <laughs> anyway, look, today's episode's a bit of a longer one. So I think we just jump Wrap straight in. <laughs> Wrap it up. This has been silly. Jump straight in. After that silly chat, we do want to say there are topics in this conversation that are quite serious and trigger warning mm. that we touch on eating disorders and suicidal ideation. So just a trigger warning if um, anyone feels like that's not something they want list- to listen to, completely understand. But this week we chatted to Annie. Oh, Annie. She is a beautiful mama. She has ADHD and is autistic and she spoke about how she came to this diagnosis at quite late in her life, how this kind of played into her family planning, how it affects her experience of motherhood, and basically how we can all just be a bit more understanding of, uh, like, I guess... Mental yeah, health, really, Mental overall. health and, and, yeah, neurodivergence and diversity and, yeah, how we can just better understand people and maybe be more empathetic human beings. And also what she said was make this world more accommodating for people with certain disabilities, disabilities. so it can be, you know, easier for them to live a beautiful life. So we absolutely love this chat and we hope you guys do too. Hello, Annie. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. Are you able to tell our beautiful listeners a little bit about yourself and your family and your background? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very privileged as a longtime listener with a one-year-old boy. 
So my name's Annie and I'm a 30-year-old disabled autistic lawyer, it's a mouthful, with ADHD, dyslexia and dysgraphia and a bunch of other fun stuff, but that's probably all you want to know. Uh, and I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome as well, which is like hypermobile skin connective stuff that can affect a lot of health things. Anyway, uh, I was diagnosed uh, with autism and ADHD at 28 years old, so that's actually not it's a late diagnosis technically, but it's not even considered that late because most women still to this day are getting diagnosed in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s because 80% of uh, autistic girls are not diagnosed at age 18. Wow. Uh, and it doesn't get much better. Yeah, that's current stats. It's horrifying. Which that stat is probably so wrong as well because yeah, it's so, if so many people yeah. are relying on a diagnosis in their 60s. Well, by the time you're 60, you wouldn't often be yes. searching for a diagnosis because you would just be like, I'm me, I'm 60. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're like most people definitely are far gone from trying to be understood and validated by the medical profession in particular. But I, uh, so I went to law school and dabbled in private law and shifted over to the public service. So I work in national security, legal policy, and have sort of been in and out of work the last few years because of health reasons. And then I had my little angel baby. My husband and I were married six, seven years before we had him. So we waited a long time just because of my health and our struggling to adult, I like to call it. <laughs> and he's magical and it's been hard, but having that diagnosis has been completely life-changing because I 100% know if I'd have had him before that, I would have absolutely collapsed. And a lot of women do. It's big life transitions are usually when these things come out. So shifting from primary to high, high to post high or uni to the workforce, motherhood, like big life transitions are usually when women stop having capacity to mask. And a lot of women are mostly diagnosed after their children these days. So it's probably one of the most common stories right now ah. that kids are being diagnosed in their like, you know, three, four, five years old. And then mom and dad are like, oh, that's exactly like me, <laughs> which uh, is the same in my mom's case. Uh, she was diagnosed uh, a year after me in her early fifties. And my husband who's also neurodivergent, mostly ADHD, uh, inattentive, which is more considered the female version of ADHD, which is quite funny. We, we love talking gender stereotypes. He was diagnosed after I was because his ADHD is actually a lot worse than mine. I have ADHD combined. So I have the inattentive side and the hyperactive impulsive side, but my hyperactivity is more internal than externally displayed. My husband has no impulsivity or hyperactivity, but severely, severely inattentive with memory issues, which makes our household a delight. So when you two got together, you were both presumed neurotypical people. Completely normal. No, I'd never stepped foot in a mental health professional's office yeah. in my life. Do you think that you were attracted to one another because you felt understanding from one another, oh, even though yeah. there was no diagnosis? Yeah. It's honestly one of the first things that we liked about each other. My husband will say this in particular. There's a thousand things I liked about him. He's six foot seven and <laughs> a gorgeous, gorgeous hunk, hunk of me. <laughs> it had nothing to do with his personality or anything. It had nothing to do with his talk. Yeah. I just really, I really wanted a tall man. Like I, I'm, I'm five, nine and 
in heels that's taller than most guys. Yeah. So when I saw him the night we met, I was like, <laughs> you're mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm so shallow. No, I'm not. I'm not. I have so many questions to ask you, but before we get into it, can you just explain a little bit more in depth about what neuro, what neuro, yes, what neuro. Wow, Jade, <laughs> what neurodivergent <laughs> is, yes. Yes. Okay, so the terminology, uh, and I'm not an expert and I'm still coming to terms with my diagnosis, which is why I've only recently started talking about this. But basically neurodiversity was a name that was actually, what's the word, named um, by Judy Singer, who's a British Aussie, but she was in Australia at the time. I think it was like her thesis or something in the 90s. And neurodiversity actually means every human. And it's the concept that we all have differences in our brains. We're all diverse in our neurotypes. And then you've got neurodivergence and neurodivergent, very complicated, but to be neurodivergent um, and people disagree a little bit on this, but not terribly. A lot of people hear neurodivergent and think uh, autistic ADHD, which uh, is probably the most common area it's used in, but technically the neurodivergent umbrella, if we like to call it, is anyone who has a neurodevelopmental disorder or a learning disability or a mental illness. It's pretty much anyone that's not, and I don't like the word normal. I don't even really like the word neurotypical because it implies normal, but neurotypical basically means someone who is the majority neurotype because to be, and this is like the language is so sensitive around this with our community because the adults, we you know, I'm, I'm disabled both because I'm autistic and have high enough needs and also because of my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And we like to say that we're disabled because we live in a world that's not set up for us. Like if you're in a wheelchair, you're disabled because not everywhere has ramps, there's stairs, right? Whereas if the majority of the world was in wheelchairs, you wouldn't be disabled. Yeah. Right? Well put. Yeah. And and it's kind of that differentiation from disorder versus who we are. So like you can treat, I have an eating disorder, for example, that's very treatable, but you can't treat autism, like you can't cure autism. You can give it more support so that you're less hindered by it in a world that's not made for you, but uh, you can't fix it. And I think that's the big issue is that with the language around early intervention and parents of autistic kids, you know, they, their struggles are so valid and I can't even speak to it because I haven't experienced it, but I've been an observer of both sides of the coin of neurotypical parents of autistic kids and autistic parents of autistic kids and just autistic adults. And, you know, there's just, there's so much stigma, as you know, in mental health, and there's so much more stigma within the language used in mental health. So like, for example, um, and I don't speak for my whole community, to be clear, I this is all just my opinion and I'm just sort of trying to keep the conversations going because I think they're really important. Let's talk about identity first and person first language. So a lot of autistic adults don't like person first language because the concept behind that is I am autistic. It's a part of who I am. You can't remove it from me. It's not something I have like a disease or an illness that can be cured. I was born autistic regardless of when I was diagnosed. And regardless of when my autistic symptoms and traits become more obvious, whereas the person first language is more commonly, and again, I'm generalizing, so no one, 
no one hate me. The non-autistic parents don't prefer, but commonly they're seen to be talking about wanting person first language because they don't want autism to define their children, which is so valid. And it's something that really does stick with me because I've done a lot in my life. And I truly think if I had a diagnosis earlier, I would have limited what I did just based on internalized ableism alone. I would have, I already had such low self-belief and self-worth and self-doubt that I'm like pushed myself through a lot of my achievements. But if I had have had that diagnosis earlier, especially in my, you know, I'm a nineties, two thousands kid. I really think there was, there's a lot of things I did that I wouldn't have done just because our understanding of autism is so limited. Like to this day, I'm on a lot of Facebook and social media groups. And one of the parts of my activism is actually helping other women understand their diagnosis or like seek a diagnosis because we still live in a world that professionals aren't like think our grandparents, for example, doctors are like, you know, the doctor knows everything. You go to the doctor, you trust the doctor. We now live in a world where Google exists, mm-hmm. right? And we also live in a world where we have more complex, better research and more knowledge about health than ever. So doctors have a lot more on their plate to know. So I don't, I don't blame them for not knowing, but equally, I, I think it needs to be stated. Like, I think we need to get better at saying that's not my expertise and they don't do that. So I actually have a lot of health issues. And so I see, I've seen a lot of health medical specialists. So it took me four rheumatologists for one to truly believe I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, not because I don't have obvious signs. I a hundred percent have HEDS, which is just hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. There's 14 types. What does, what is that? So Ehlers-Danlos, it's actually really commonly co-occurring with autism, but it's without being great at the medical terminology, it's um, issues with connective tissue. So it can affect everything from how you heal from scars to dislocating joints and having like dodgy joints. And you can have really tight muscles because your joint laxity causes your muscles to overcompensate and get tight. So you can have chronic pain. It can affect your, your ability to have anesthesia, like some people more hypo or hypersensitive to anesthesia. It's, it's so complicated and we're barely, barely touching the surface of understanding it in the last five years. And, and the hypermobile one, which is of the 14, I think it's 14, is the most common, but it's the only one that you can't test for genetic markers. So it's the hardest one to diagnose because the others, it's just a blood test. But this one, you've got to hit all this criteria. And similarly to autism, the people who know about Ehlers-Danlos but aren't experts think that it's this tiny little list of things. So you've got to have a severe joint hypermobility. So really obvious signs of being hypermobile. So like I can touch my finger to my arm. Wow. So there's this, there's this test that you do and there's like nine body things and you've just got to hit six or above to be considered hypermobile. And I hit seven. So there was one that I couldn't do. So one of the rheumatologists is like, well, you can't do that. So you can't have it. And it's like going to a psych and, and them saying, oh, you can make eye contact, eye contact so you can't be autistic what? (laughs) And then another one said to me that my skin wasn't stretchy enough because another one of the symptoms of a couple of different types of Ehlers-Danlos is to have stretchy skin. But that wasn't a big thing in mine. And again, it's, it's like, you've got to look at the big picture because, and the thing about the autism spectrum, it's one of the, it's probably one of my pet peeves um, out of all the language usage is you know, people make comments like you're a little on the spectrum or you're a lot on the spectrum or we're all a little bit on the spectrum. No, that's absolutely not a thing. Like the spectrum does is it's not a continuum of severity 
or how much you might be on it. It's, it's like a color wheel, right? So, and the color wheel, each color is a different area of, of issues. So you've got like motor issues, you've got emotional regulation, executive functioning, social communication, speech and language, eye contact, uh, sensory issues. Like it's a wheel of traits. And some of us, like everyone's color wheel is different, but you have to hit a certain amount of that color wheel to get a diagnosis. But you might find some areas of that challenging and some absolutely fine, but it's not like which end of the spectrum do you sit on? Yes. And and equally it's um, how it's displayed. So one of the biggest reasons why women are missed in diagnosis and girls is one, because the diagnostic criteria was based on the male display, like most of our medical system is based on male male research by male doctors because patriarchy, you know. So the gender bias in diagnostic criteria is still very much there. Uh, and then equally the gender bias in how we raise our children, mostly still unconsciously so. Like I'm, I'm a massive feminist and I still get hit with my own internalized gender bias constantly, like feeling guilty for asking my husband to do something. And I'm like... <laughs> you're an equal part in this relationship. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've all been there. Yeah. Right. And, and kids like, and I don't know how much of this is like biological versus environmental, but we treat little boys to this day, like when we're far more accepting of them and their Mm -hmm. behaviors, whereas little girls are still getting told to be good, not too loud, you know, be polite. Little girls aren't too emotional and dramatic, like, or bossy, like these things are still very much happening a little bit more subtly maybe, but the the implications of them are far reaching. So as a child, what would have been those issues that came up? Yeah. So my display of autism is very internalized because when I was a kid and I'll, I'll talk about examples, but I had all of these problems, but I very quickly internalized them and felt so much shame that I changed my behavior. And so this is like the lovely, was it Courtney that you interviewed a few years Mm -hmm. ago? She was explaining this and I can totally relate is that I'd come home from school and have meltdowns, but I was the perfect little student. I mean, other than the only bad remarks in all my reports was that I was easily distracted and a bit chatty. (laughs) But at school, like I was a straight B plus A minus student all through school, like with not much effort, mostly because I couldn't make the effort for a whole number of reasons. And then I'd come home and I would literally break down when my parents like, how was your day? And my meltdowns, some meltdowns are very aggressive and physical and some are really like just extremely emotional, like everyone's meltdowns look different. So mine was either like crying and upset or verbal aggression, like angry. And I never really could understand, like the anger was usually coming from a place of complete overwhelm and anxiety. But to my parents, it just looked like I was a pissed off young girl or something, yeah. you know, like pre preteen. Hormonal, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's so interesting. Cause I guess a lot of the misconception is that if you are autistic, you would be unable to hide those things. Yeah. Yes. And that's the problem with women because we are so much more socially adept from a very young age. We are the nurturers. We are the caregivers. We see that when we're kids, we see the mothers doing that. We want to copy our mums. So even if you live in a very equal parent relationship, like 
uh, I loved that episode. Was it the, the other day with the mental health stuff about people judging you for not bringing the present, not your husband? Yeah. Like you can't get out of that stuff. It's still very present. And, and sadly, it's so unconscious that I think it is important to call it out because it's still happening, whether we are aware of it or not, or whether it's like overt. So little girls grow up and from a very young age, they're usually much more socially adept much quicker to talk. I was hyperverbal. I think it's called hyperlexic language again, like nonverbal autism. Um, they prefer to be called non-speaking because nonverbal implies that you don't like, there's no verbal. It just implies to say, but they probably do have a lot to say. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So girls are much more social and, and equally like, and I think this is still a big problem that even though we're getting more aware of girls, the young kids that are getting diagnosed are only the ones that really have overt obvious or harmful behaviors. And I don't say harmful in a judgmental way. I just mean like, obviously if you're doing anything physical, people are going to be like, Oh, we got to do something about that. (laughs) But if you're just a really sensitive little girl who cries a lot and like is sometimes social, but sometimes withdrawn, people don't really suspect anything. Uh, And and also there there are non-autistic or neurotypical girls that are like that too. So it's not like that obvious, but with little girls, because we are so socially adept, our issues tend to come out later because the social environment becomes more complicated the older you get. But also the hormones. Oh, like and hormones, we, yes. I can't believe they haven't done a study oh, on just alone on, on females because you incorporate hormones into some, a, a disorder and like I, that blows my mind. Do you think now the reason that we have people being diagnosed at 20 and 40 is because, you know, now that we have all these different avenues of education and resources, we're able to diagnose now and hopefully our children will be picked up and recognized at an earlier age. So we are able to do what we can to support them in this world. A hundred percent. And I guess that's the goal at the end of the day, isn't it? Is that we want to not only get on top of everyone who's been missed because of, you know, just like where we are in our knowledge base um, as a society and medical field, but also we want to make it so that the kids growing up now or being born now don't have to have that issue. Like they're getting that support from very early on um, rather than what a lot of us who were diagnosed late experienced, which was a lot of pain and suffering and comorbid mental illnesses because we weren't supported, because we didn't know, and because we didn't understand our own brains. We didn't have the language or the knowledge. Like, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know, you know? Well said. (laughs) Like, Yeah. So like, uh, for instance, I'd like to think I was a pretty self-aware person growing up. I tried desperately to understand myself and especially in in the sense to, to try and be as normal as I could and hide the things about me that were obviously not normal. But as I got further into therapy, and this is actually another problem is CBT. Some people are pro CBT for uh, autistics or neurodiverse, but I didn't like CBT because it didn't give me what I needed. And what I needed was self-awareness and self-compassion And CBT is a very cognitive therapy that focuses on seeing your thoughts and then choosing to change them. And I didn't have a choice in changing my thoughts. So getting diagnosed and having access to therapists that understood autism is what helped me in basically getting what I've always needed, which was acceptance and 
truly understanding myself, even enough to be able to advocate for my needs instead of just suffering in silence and getting consistently burnt out and breaking down and having meltdowns. And were you doing CBT and having therapy before your diagnosis because you were having mental health issues potentially because you've never had a diagnosis or was this after your diagnosis? Yeah. So, and this is where the whole life transition stuff happens around like, I don't know how to explain it other than like our autistic traits get more obvious when we have more pressures on us or big changes in life. So I did five years of a double degree and I've had severe anxiety my whole life, but growing up in the nineties, I think we all understand that mental health wasn't very aware. The world wasn't that aware. And, but on top of that, I'm a military brat and the military are particularly mental health avoidant. They're getting better. (laughs) They have a long way to go. But I, I say that because if you think about it, if you have any mental illness or any mental difference, it downgrades your mech, which is like the ranking of how ready you are to deploy. So you've got to be like top level fitness to be able to deploy. And the people who are in the military, all they want to do is deploy. All they want to do is the job they're trained to do. So if you've got any mental health issues, you're not going to be open about. This is actually for physical health issues too. My dad had severe sciatica when I was a kid and he went to a off the books doctor for help because he didn't want his mech downgraded. Yeah. <laughs> which so you're is just now biting bury his- that shit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's biting him in the ass cuz he's dealing with DBA now and they're like, "Well, you didn't have that pain back then." I'm like, "Well, mm. I did, but I didn't tell you about it." Yeah. <laughs> like that's I give that example because it explains like if they're doing that about not a big deal physical health stuff, then what are they going to do about the stigma attached to any mental illness? So I grew up in a family that was like, there was a book that came out before I was born uh, called The Mask of Command. And I find it so funny that it's always been my dad's favorite thing (laughs) to mention because masking is such an autistic thing, right? And The Mask of the Command is basically saying that you know, you go out with your soldiers and you put on that leadership mask and you don't show weakness and you don't show vulnerability and you lead them with your greatness. <laughs> like, but that was your day in, day in, yeah. day out without maybe the toxic masculinity, but that was your every day for you. A little bit of that, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That was my life. But even in today's culture, you've got parents that if if they don't have the tools and don't understand that their children are suffering with a disability or they've got yes. some issue, they either get really thrown in conversation when they're out and embarrassed or yes. they don't know what to do. And when they actually go yes. through this process and get tools that can help, the whole family dynamic goes 360 because they're like, you know what, we now finally can understand you, which means we can help you. So it's almost like you need to accept but how hard is it for a parent to accept that there may be an issue with your child because I know personally obviously that you know autism I have a down syndrome uncle there are so many disabilities out there as well but the thing is if you cannot address what is happening in front of you and just sit in denial you'll never be able to make your life easier 100 and 1000% true in every way. And it's such a big problem because I mean, mental health is so stigmatized and disability is stigmatized. I mean, that's kind of the concept of the neurodiversity movement is that we like uh, the autism diagnosis. A lot of people don't even like autism spectrum disorder. They like autism spectrum condition, Mm. the pathologizing of our 
essentially like personalities almost like our traits they're mm. symptoms for for doctors but for us they're just traits like they're who we are right and so unfortunately like it's not like an easy fix because you kind of need those systems in place that, so that we can be identified as needing support. Yeah. But at the same time, all that does to the broader community is perpetuate stigma and makes parents feel shamed about it and, and, and like rejected from their own communities. I feel like we've come a long way, but there's still definitely yes. that stigma of like, oh, do they have ADHD or do like the parents just feed them too much sugar or yeah. like, are they autistic or did they just get too much screen time? And it's like, that is not what like you can't just all of a sudden go, oh, like if I stop them watching TV, they're not going to have their traits anymore. Like, Oh, that's such rubbish, right? Yeah. And so I don't know if you've heard of this before, but there's a term called the refrigerator mum. And I think it was in the 80s or something. I'm not super familiar with it, but basically they used to blame parents or mums particularly for having autistic kids. Refrigerator mum means you were cold and emotionless and you didn't give them that nurturing. And it's funny because I think the there's a really high rate of genetics in autism. You don't have to technically have it. It's not always genetic, but it's highly genetic. I think the percentages are something up in the sixties or above. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty high hereditary, but again, it doesn't have to be. So I like to make that clear because some people are then like, oh, you have to have it in your line. No, you can literally not and still have an autistic child. Mm. Not that it matters, but I think a lot of these refrigerator moms were probably undiagnosed autistic yeah. women. And we display our emotions very differently. I don't, I'm, I'm a much more like neurotypical-esque emotion shower, but there are neurotistic women that aren't. And again, this is like, where's your, where's your color wheel falling, right? I wonder if your mum was neurotypical, if maybe you would have got a diagnosis sooner, because if she'd gone through life with no diagnosis and she's like, oh, my daughter's just like me and I am neurotypical, like not that she would have had this terminology probably yeah, at the time, no, true. but you know, she's like, you know, I mean, back then probably quote unquote normal, which is not what we want to say now, but you know, like if she went through life going, Oh, I'm neurotypical and my daughter's just like me, then she's neurotypical too. But I wonder if she was truly neurotypical, if earlier she may have been like, and I'm not blaming this on your mum at all. She could only do with what the resources she had there, but I wonder if it maybe would have stood out more to her as traits or differences. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'll add that I have very much genetics in the play here. Like my, I've got cousins on both sides of my parents' families with autism and dyslexia who are mostly all getting late diagnoses. But I, I think that's hundred percent true. And my mom actually went through a phase when I was diagnosed of like feeling really guilty about it um, because she felt like she should have done more, but she didn't because Again, I was just like her. And I think it's a big risk actually because, and this is like when I heard Courtney's episode is uh, she knew there was something different, right? She's neurotypical and her daughter, one of her daughters was autistic and she kept pushing. She And it's really hard to push against doctors because doctors have, there's a power divide with the doctor-patient relationship and doctors, as we know, can be very arrogant. So when they're telling you it's normal, which a lot of them do around child behavior, there's such a broad range of what's normal, then it's hard for you to say, well, I disagree. They're like, well, I'm a pediatrician and I know more than you. What did you finish high school? Like it's yeah. so, so horrible. And so like, it's great 
that she did keep pushing because she did get the outcome she wanted and it's been so like liberating for her family. But I think there's an error, like a, a problem there, a gap that potentially the many undiagnosed neurodiverse women are not going to have that because their children might, I mean, they can be very different because obviously we all have different displays of it, but most likely like my mother and I, they can look really similar. Yeah. So it's like hard to think that there's anything wrong with your child when you and your extended family have been similar to that. <laughs> like, How do I know that I don't have it? Mm, yeah. So, and that's hard because I think if you don't do a deep dive of research, you really run the risk of, if you just Googled autism, you're going to get the most generic stereotyped list. Five and you're going to be like, points. yeah, but like, I overthink. I have anxiety, depression. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I have a lot of mental issues and I feel like this year I've done a hell of a lot of work. I still have medication to make sure that I'm balanced, but you know, someone actually messaged me. I've had it twice and some they've said, have you ever been tested for ADHD? Mm -hmm. And I said, I have never been asked that by my doctor because I guess I don't show signs of it, but just sitting here listening, like you, you actually, and I'm not saying that I do and I'm diagnosing myself, but you're you're hitting hitting my heart. Like what you're really speaking to me in in terms of, and it might even just be a mental health level. I'm not sure, but I don't know. It's true. Yeah, no. So I think the first part of that question is um, we've got to understand that mental illness is slightly different and every neurotype can have mental illness. So I also have anxiety and depression. My depression is periodic and it's actually usually usually a result of my autism traits becoming worse because of environment. But there's a lot of overlap in trauma and, and anxiety and autism. So a lot of the stuff that we suffer from, not from, with, can sound really similar. So it's, and this is where it really becomes important. I would suggest to anyone out there who's even slightly thinking any of this sounds familiar, find a psychiatrist or a psychologist, because you can do either, that specialize in autistic girls and women. Because if you, even if you see a psychiatrist that specializes in autism or a pediatrician, there's still a highly chance, high chance that they don't have expertise enough to really spot it. If I'd have gone to anyone other than who I did and the few people like him, the psychiatrist who only works with neurodivergence and mostly adults, which again, it's much harder to diagnose in adults because we have found all these techniques over our life to hide the the things because society constantly tells us we're wrong and weird. So we don't want that message and change our behavior if we can. Anyway, but that would be my biggest thing because and it's, it's actually another issue is that even when women are diagnosed, they have such severe imposter syndrome about whether they truly are autistic or ADHD because the, the amount of misinformation out there is just, it's, there's so much of it. It's so hard to fight back against. I went through that the first year of diagnosis. I was like, really? I actually, you'll love this story. I'll give you a really, really brief summary of how I actually got diagnosed. Well, I was going to go next question. So. Yeah. What led you there? I think this actually might help people understand because I, you know, I talk about people not understanding, but I was one of those people. I had no idea about ADHD and autism at all. Like I I didn't even know what Rain Man was, which a lot of people talk about autism and Rain Man, but apparently he's not even actually autistic. So whatever. Um, (laughs) So what happened for me, and, and this will help give you a picture of 
what even led me down the mental health road is that I finished my five-year degree and I started full-time work as a grad and I'd always struggled with working. I'd always struggled with everything, but <laughs> muscled through and, you know, military discipline and strength, you get on with my it. Gosh. Yeah. So I started working, I did my grad year and that was very hard, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I kept going because I'm pretty determined. But uh, I've burnt out severely. Like I was barely two years into full-time work and I just literally couldn't move. I don't even know how to explain it. At the time, I thought it was because I had a boss who was an asshole that and I just blamed help. it all on him. It definitely wouldn't have helped, but I just was like, it's him. It's, it's not me. <laughs> but I'm just even <laughs> thinking about this, like, okay, no matter what you do, if it's in a new career path, whatever, the first two years yeah. are going to be stressful as fuck. Everything's new, all of that. If you are on top of that, yeah. being told by society that traits that come naturally to you are weird and are going to be seen as you know, that are going to be challenged or judged. Yeah. Like I'm exhausted even thinking about that. But that's why you work in overdrive. Like even sitting, yes. Sophie, Sophie and I are really different and even sometimes when I'm talking I second guess myself and then I actually get in my own head and then I actually go, oh, you're not, you're not doing good enough and I psych myself out and then I Same. go for a mental blank and I'm like, hang on, just regroup. And it's like almost like self-sabotage. So trying to do a say, uni degree. prophecy. Yeah, 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 but doing something yeah. and then dealing with your own anxiety that's pretty much telling you to fuck off at the same time, it's like that is a lot of mental energy and exhaustion. So much. Yeah, and the thing like that people don't talk about is um, uni is so different to full-time work. And I, I did law and commerce, so I, that's like very low hours. That's not like a science degree where you have a lot of lab hours or medicine. I think I did four subjects a semester and had like a two hour lecture per subject a week and maybe a one hour tutorial. Like I think it was 12 hours a week that I had to be there and I didn't even go to half of that. So I spent my five years at uni being pretty independent and able to manipulate my lifestyle to help me manage in a way that I didn't, I didn't even know that I just, I'm very avoidant and I know what I don't like. I don't necessarily know why I don't like it, but I try and work my life around what I want to avoid most. <laughs> and so I wouldn't go to lectures. I'd sometimes listen to them online. I only went to tutorials when it was mandatory. And even then I took the brunt of losing a couple great marks for not going sometimes. And yeah, I just, it was manageable. And then when you go to full-time work, you're suddenly five days a week, nine to five at least with people constantly in an environment you have zero control over. So from being, I mean, for me, I was a public service grad. So in open planned cubicle offices, really bright, bright fluoro lights, everyone talking. So I can't concentrate and I'm overstimulated and I have to put on my social masks because I'm very good socially, but it takes a lot from me. Like, and, and I don't say that to be arrogant. I'm, I'm actually not very good socially, but on the autism picture, people would think that I'm pretty, like you wouldn't think I had social deficits, but they're very subtle and I've worked my ass off to overcome them <laughs> from everything from like watching a shit ton of movies and TV shows and learning from them as a kid, which is actually not that helpful because they're pretty dramatic, but <laughs> um, to like practicing in the mirror as a kid. To, which is why like, it's so hard to diagnose a female so adult. I didn't even know I'm, I'm literally, I was like my worst enemy because if I just not fought it at every corner and let it, let myself fall apart and let my issues show, I would have gotten help. So it's like, 
it's it's, it's pretty catch 22 though yeah yeah 100% and so I had that massive burnout and that was the first time in my life even though I've spent I'd spent plenty of time before that in doctor's offices for health reasons that my doctor was like okay so you have anxiety and depression and you should start seeing a psychologist so I started seeing a psychologist regularly and I ended up trying to return to work like two months later and in that time I was in a car accident which was bad luck and I really sucked at the return to work because all of a sudden, and I don't think this is everyone's experience and it certainly isn't mine because I've since done return to works at other organizations that were so supportive, but the one I was in at the time and the area that was managing it could have just been those people. They were like micromanaging me and to have a magnifying magnifying glass put on you when you already try and hide, it's horrifying. So I quit that job. Um, after trying to return to work for a while. And I was terrified. I'm like, I've killed myself to get through school and uni and to get a prestigious grad position. And I've just thrown it away because I can't hack a dickhead boss. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? I literally, I wasn't even going to quit. I said I was really suicidal at the time, uh, trigger warning for people. But um, my dad was like, you need to quit. And it was him telling me to quit that let me quit Mm. because my dad it's I was like, going to say, he doesn't quit. sound like the kind of person that would normally recommend no. quitting. So if he's saying quit, then you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I was lucky because uh, within six months, I, I got like a contract gig at another department from a law school mate of mine. And within six months of that, got back into permanency. So like it picked up again. But in in all of this time, I'm still seeing a regular psychologist, mostly doing CBT. And the funny thing about that is I saw this woman for three years and it was getting me nowhere. Like, I mean, yeah, it got me better enough to try to work again, but I was still like in a hole. And the two things I saw a report she wrote after the first year, because I was going through legal action for the guy who hit me in the car. And so they were getting reports. My lawyers were getting reports and the report she did about me. The two things that she said were my problem was avoidance and perfectionism, which I just find hilarious because they are some of the most obvious signs of trauma to start with, let alone autism and anxiety, right? So, and she actually, she told me to read the Highly Sensitive Person book by Elaine What's-Her-Face. <laughs> have you heard of it? Have no, you heard of it? said that so confidently, like Elaine her name What's is actually face? Elaine What's-Her-Face. <laughs> oh, shit, no. I don't, I just don't remember her name. I'm, That's I'm not great. Really no, name. I know, we'll but you it. just said it so confidently. I was like, oh, no, that can't be her name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. We'll put the actual surname in the show gotcha. notes. That's fine. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, so this chick wrote all these books about the Highly Sensitive person or the HSP. And she's got a book about being a HSP parent, a HSP child, a HSP person. Uh, And they're great books. I actually loved it. I connected so well. I'm like, I'm a HSP. I know myself. (laughs) It was just like, uh, if you haven't read it, you need to look at it. Yeah. Oh my God. But now like, and this is pretty well known in in the neurodiverse divergent community is uh, HSP is very similar to a lot of autistic and ADHD traits. So some of us argue that it's actually a uh, socially approved version of autism in Uh, women. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, And that's not necessarily true because you can be HSP and not have these things. And this is where it's like not all or nothing. I'm constantly questioning my all or nothing language and thinking. And so she said I was HSP and this all made me think she knew about me because she wasn't wrong. But she also didn't have the whole picture. And I don't blame her or anything, but I do think it's kind of negligent. Like, so let me just put an example out there because this is how like my brain thinks about 
doctors and responsibility. Uh, I was actually going to do medicine and I randomly changed to law very last minute. So there's this thing in law called the model litigant. And it's basically a system that means that you have a responsibility as a lawyer to act in the best interest of your your client and to be competent. So if you, there's a few like specific things around it, but if you have a lawyer that represents you, that's like not competent in some of these ways, you can literally sue them. I think it's sue them. I'm, I'm a shit lawyer. Don't, don't listen to my advice, but there's like a whole thing. And actually one of my jobs in uh, one of the public service roles I was in legal was legal strategy. And our role was to look at our entire caseload of lawsuits, which was huge, and to deal with model litigant claims, which was a few. (laughs) And so as a chronically ill disabled woman who's seen at least a hundred doctors in the last 15 years, I'm not being hyperbolic. That's true. It astounds me that there's not the equivalent of a model litigant for doctors, because if there was, I would be loaded. <laughs> mm. Like, and this is where it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the expertise and like owning that you might not know all of that because I think you have a responsibility. And this is also where awareness and understanding and education and research comes in is that like, it's not like that psychologist knew I was autistic and ignored it. She literally didn't know, like I didn't know. <laughs> But that to me is a problem. How is it that one of the key mental health professionals that people see and- And you'd been seeing her for a substantial amount of time. Yeah, amount yeah. of time. So it's not like it was just the surface level. Like we, we dug deep and it was still not obvious to her. And this is not uncommon for women on the spectrum. But like, if they're not finding out, then what hope do we have? Like those people like Courtney who blame themselves and think that they're being, you know, they're getting told by medical professionals that there's nothing wrong and then then they're getting gaslighted, you know, they're doing that and, and yet they're right. It's just, oh, it's upsetting. But how much do we need to know? Like, I guess you don't want to be so overwhelmed with so many names and labels. 100%. So how do you know, like, when do you get to a point where you're like, that is enough for me to understand enough yes. about myself to go from here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's so many layers to that question, but I'm probably going to take it literally and think, like, how can they help these medical professionals? For instance, I actually started to study a psych degree a few years ago because I was like, I'm going to fucking sort this out myself. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be surprised if you did. Yeah. So I started my psych degree and I immediately quit when I saw the stuff they were teaching because they had like, I don't even think they had a unit on autism and the stuff in the textbook, an intro to psych on autism was like two pages and it was the most ancient extreme stereotyped version you could ever imagine like (laughs) I was like is this being taught still (laughs) like let's move on to your experience as a mother did you have reservations around becoming a mother yes so so many and I I desperately have wanted kids my whole life I'm a very affectionate very maternal person and I just remember wanting kids forever. And like, I kind of wish I didn't Yeah, (laughs) because I don't think I'm really set up to be a mother that finds it very easy. Not that any mother does, right? No one does. No one does. does. And no one is set up to be a mother. Like everyone is, you know, when, you know, when someone says, someone says to you, like my sister-in-law always says, 
Jade, I do not know how you do it. And it's like, I don't have any other option. Like, this is me making it up. This is me struggling. This is me doing yes. it because I have to. I've I've chosen to be yeah, a Yeah, you have no choice, right? And and actually, I, I loved your episode the other day with um that psychologist on the mother, the mental load, because that is uh, just needs to be talked about. But the you know how she talked about um, and for those listens, I'll explain because I'm I know people don't listen to every single thing because life's should. busy, but they should. They absolutely go listen to it if you haven't listened to it because it's one of my absolute favorite episodes you guys have ever done. No, but I, I loved how she talked about the mental load and when you become a mum, she really broke down the layers of you having to be on top of when they're growing out of the next size and mm. when you're running low on nappies or formula or whatever, how much that takes out of us and how to the outsider it looks like almost nothing. Like, you know, if, you, if your husband comes home from work, you're like, you just put clothes in a drawer. What have you done all day? Right. Yep. But actually it's constant mental fatigue and especially like, and this is what sometimes I get pissed off because my husband's been like working full time while I've had to have time off periodically. And it makes me feel bad. And it makes me take on a lot at home because I feel like, well, I'm home, so I should do more, but he gets to come home from work and switch off. Yeah. I'm home all the time and I'm always thinking about what needs to be done. And that just gets worse in motherhood. And, and the thing that I like the way she described this, what she was explaining was executive function. So executive function is like the CEO of your brain. They're the ones that they're your EA and they do all your admin and they stay on top of everything and they're self-monitoring and self-adjusting and keeping a blind, a big eye view of the whole world and figuring shit out. Like Boss, boss women. <laughs> that nobody can see. That nobody can see. So, and this is actually really helpful to explain autism and ADHD because ADHD is basically executive functioning issues. And autistic people, some of us have also got executive functioning issues that don't have ADHD. I have both. It's great. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, and this is why I joke that my husband and I didn't want to have kids earlier because we sucked at adulting because adulting is essentially like one of the things that is needed from executive functioning. Adulting is paying your bills, buying your groceries, keeping your fridge cleaned out, not getting old food, meal planning, cooking, cleaning, like that stuff is all using thousands of thought processes that we don't even consciously acknowledge. And people with executive functioning struggles, whether you're autistic, ADHD or what, find those things so much harder. And it's really hard for people like that to explain to the world why they're struggling because some of them, it's really obvious. Maybe they live in a like mess or maybe they don't shower regularly. But is that because you don't think about showering? Oh, it's a bit of, it's a bit of distraction, but it's also like, so to break it down even further, it's like, it includes things like task initiation. So motivation to start the task, ability to stop and change tasks. Like there's so much more depth to what it actually means. So some people might not shower because they can't be bothered. Some people won't do it because it's not fun enough on their dopamine scale, which is kind of how ADHD thinks about it. And some of them won't shower because it's a sensory overwhelm and they've got enough shit going on in their life. And we're constantly trying to monitor what can go and what can stay to stay functioning, which is why functioning labels are shit. So there's just so much to why that could be happening, which is why when you actually find, so this is the good news, right? If you find out you have any of these problems and you find professionals that can help you, which can be hard, but thanks to social media and such, like, oh, Canberra mums, I'm in Canberra and I see at least twice a week, I see a post from a mum saying, 
I think my daughter's got ADHD or this, like, and I love that. I always respond and I'm like, I did and go see these people and like to get good information about who's who in the zoo. Because if you just Google, like, you know, how I said before, find someone who knows neurodivergent women. You can't just Google that. That's actually really hard to find. I think it might be time to have a ADHD mama mates group chat. Yes. You might need to be mm. admin. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> you don't, you need another job. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do. I do. No, well, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm not, I don't know whether I'll give up my public service job. I only work one day a week. This is kind of my my baby. Um, now that my son's in daycare and I have a little bit more time, I'm really getting on this bandwagon. So I'd love to do something like that. I just, Great. we do Done. need more community. And there are lots of um, like ADHD parenting groups and stuff. But it's just, it's it's a hard, hard area to navigate. It's interesting that you used that example from the mm. mental labor chat because I remember when Elise was going through that, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, like that's how, how it does feel and you're exhausted listening. And actually two women wrote in and they said, thank you so much for breaking that down. Amazing. I have ADHD and that is how every decision feels to me. And I find it really, really difficult to explain to people why I get so mentally exhausted and she said the way that she broke it down is exactly how it feels and I was like oh my gosh that really paints a picture of what a day must feel like yeah and it's hard because when we explain it to people and this is just human nature you again you don't know what you don't know so when I say it's really hard for me to do the dishes every night you're like just do the dishes it's not that hard it takes five minutes yeah there is so much more to that Uh, And this is like where it's really misunderstood. Exactly. And so for me, my biggest issues with my neurodivergence are in executive functioning and sensory. So even though I've like outwardly looked like I've achieved a lot and I have, I have done that at a cost of like barely holding it together. And I'm not just talking like, I mean, a lot of us barely hold it together. Right. But I'm talking like, I'll be frank, like this is so embarrassing for me to say, but it has to be talked about. When I was working full time, my husband and I ate takeout every night of every day of every week. And that was not because I was like not trying to eat well. It was because if I had to work full time, other shit had to go. And that was stuff like cooking, cleaning. My house was a disaster. It looked like I was a hoarder. I'm not a hoarder. I just had no executive function time or energy to sort shit out. So stuff just piled up. Like to the point where it's taken me a year of getting a personal home organizer, thank you to NDIS, to fix my house. And I have never been happier. So highly recommend everyone get one. And have you found that same feeling once becoming a full-time mum as well? Or yeah, is, is, is that how you function is by outsourcing as much as you can? As much as you can, but unfortunately you can't for a lot of things that you need to use those resources for. So for instance, daycare is fabulous. For me, daycare isn't even about working. It's about having a sensory break from my delightfully loud and rambunctious little dude. And it's honestly, my favorite thing about daycare is not feeding him during the day. Not (laughs) having to think about that. Not having to think about what I'll feed him, buy what I'll feed him, prep what I'll feed him, clean what I'll feed him. And then like, make sure the next meal isn't the same thing like this. And let's be honest, you probably won't eat it anyway. (laughs) No, well, I'm I'm not at the full toddler stage yet. So he still mostly eats what I want. But um, that is the, like a huge drain on me for executive function. And uh, there's lots of stuff like that. So another thing is sleep deprivation. And I got the statistics as I love statistics. The 
rates of autistic women experiencing postnatal depression is 60 percent the general population is 12 percent the and they have 40 percent chance of experiencing prenatal depression which is not actually that surprising to me because just based on our own struggles alone and the demands put on mothers it makes sense why we are set up to fail completely it's just it's horrible and for me like the sleep deprivation is huge because that's one of my, I sleep a lot, always have. And it's been one of my ways to cope with the craziness of the world and sensory overwhelm and cognitive fatigue. And you can't sleep whenever you want with a kid, like especially those first few years, that was a huge, huge struggle for me. And I had a good sleeper. My little boy, Leo is a legend and I still really struggled. Whereas I have friends who had babies that didn't sleep. And they got postnatal anxiety. And I'm like, no shit. <laughs> I'm a good sleeper and I'm I'm borderline. <laughs> Another question that got sent in was by someone who has ADHD and she doesn't have children yet. And she said that she feels like she's ADHD proofed her life by doing things Yay. like setting reminders and that kind of thing. But she said she's really, really worried about becoming a mum because she doesn't know yes. how she can possibly ADHD proof her life with a baby. Yeah. And- and honestly, I don't either. Like, and this is where <laughs> Great. Ex- okay. external, no, no, no. I mean, I don't know, but I do know how to do it. Like, I don't know to do it myself. So the answer to that, and, and this is kind of what annoys me about our medical system, but autism is a disability. ADHD is not. So I can get NDIS. I'm on NDIS for my autism. What is that? Sorry. Oh, sorry. The national disability scheme. Okay. So they give me money to see therapists and get support. Like I get a cleaner once a fortnight and yeah, you can get a bunch of stuff. Like some people get gardeners and and meal delivery. I have a personal organizer from it. You can have support workers. It just depends on your needs and your plan and it's a whole thing. But um, ADHD people can't access that. And yet most of the community would argue that they can have just as debilitating needs. Yeah, I certainly would because my ADHD is just as horrible as my autism issues, if not more sometimes in, in a functioning capacity. Anyway, I hope that changes one day. But in the meantime, hopefully, if you have access to uh, the mo- the funny the the funny the, the mon- funny. money and fu- the funds and money, laughing <laughs> <laughs> with you, not if at you. you. <laughs> I know it's totally fine. If you have access to it, I would find a mental health occupational therapist, which again isn't that easy. <laughs> the reason I say that is occupational therapists are supposed to be able to help you function in every way at work. At, school, like they help kids with learning disabilities and whatever. I I also, and I say this because I didn't know what any of these professionals did before I experienced it, including speech pathologists. I'm now seeing a speech pathologist to help with my eating disorder and like the interaction of my eating disorder and my autism. And I just thought they dealt dealt with lists, but they deal with like your ability to eat, your sensory issues to eat so much more. So a mental health OT can help you with pretty much everything to do with your ADHD issues. And they are the ones that have the skills, knowledge, and I guess I like to call it imagination (laughs) because I feel like I lack the imagination to think about ways to overcome stuff. I'll see the barrier and then it'll block me or I'll go externally. This is why I'm a a research fiend because I was like, I need to find out the answer, but I can't, I can't just be like, oh, just try this. Um, so the mental health OT is ready, set, ready to go and say, like you say, I can't do this. And they go, let's try ABC. And 
it's a process, but that usually helps put things in place. So for me, it's been, I've been trialing an error, a few things, but I've tried meal deliveries. I've tried, like, I have a real problem with food and like meal planning and reading recipes because of my dyslexia. So, um, I found an app called meal board, if anyone's interested, that incorporates your favorite recipes, which you can suck in from the internet or personally fill out as many as you like, a meal plan and calendar and an auto-populated list for shopping all in one app. I know it sounds magical. The only downside is it's a shit ton of work to set up initially, but But once you've got it going, oh my God, it like halves the amount of executive functioning needed to feed yourself or your family. So like it's those sort of things that a mental health OT can help you with that I was terrified as well. And having access to good psychology and OTs who understand mental illness or anything like that, that's the definitely the way I would say go about fixing it. You, you can't really rely on yourself to do it. I mean, we have these issues for a reason. Uh, we're just not naturally gifted in this and area. That, we're gifted yes, in other ways. Yes, thank you. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of a thing called twice exceptional. It's, it's me. Uh, it, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds, it kind of sounds like douchebaggy. Oh, but um, not me. <laughs> so twice exceptional. And I think this is important to bring up because it's another reason why the girls are particularly um, misdiagnosed, but it's not a gender thing. But um, twice exceptional is a terminology used for in schools to say that you have two exceptionalities. One of them is a giftedness exceptionality. So that can be gifted musician, intellectually, with maths, like any sort of giftedness. And the second is a learning disability or like just any disability, but it's generally like dyslexia or autism, whatever. And the interaction of those two exceptionalities, one being nice and fun and the other being a pain in the ass, but also like you can't change. Um, You can just get help to support. They interact together. And and my psychiatrist says I'm twice exceptional, but I'm like, yay, I'll take it. (laughs) I don't, I don't know that I am, but I was very gifted at maths. I am so good at numbers and patterns. I did the top extension and advanced maths with no effort, but suck at English suck at language, like not language, but like reading and writing without a computer. <laughs> and and like my auntie's Mensa, like oh, wow. I'm not trying to toot my horn and say, I'm really smart, but also like I have some gifts that I'm sure many people have. And the problem is, is that they mask my disability and my disability yeah. masks my gifts. So even though I was a A minus B plus student, I a hundred percent, if I'd had the right support for all of my neurodiverseness, I would have a hundred percent been an A plus student, like easily. My my brother was in uh, advanced maths in year 11 and 12, and he, he was struggling. Like it was the first time in his life he'd struggled with maths and he dropped back to general maths and topped it, topped the school. Like his struggle wasn't that he wasn't good at maths. It was in the learning disability. I don't know that my brother has a learning disability, but whatever. Like, But I get what you mean. It could be like you're a gifted musician, but then you struggle with communication. So it might be, you know, you might avoid going to a music lesson because you're too scared to communicate with your music teacher. So then they've both got in the way of like one another or whatever. That's a really good example. Or like maybe you struggle to read music, so you need it written in a different Mm. way. Like I've always struggled with the lines and the dots of music, like visually to take that in. Cause I've played a few, few musicals in my time, but my ADHD means I've never lasted more than like <laughs> two months. Anyway, <laughs> Jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like I used to find when I played music is I'd write the letters like mm. a minor, whatever, like, cause I couldn't read music 
like that. Yeah. And I think that's probably my dyslexia, who knows? But um, it's that sort of thing. And recognizing that is really helpful. And I think it's important because these are like the most underdiagnosed. So women are very underdiagnosed. And then like the people who suffer the most are people like, you know, the BIPOC community, all the marginalized groups. It's like the more marginalized, the more you're going to not have access to support. Exactly. The intersectionality. So um, this is one of the intersectionalities, twice exceptional, where, you know, it's not like I, I struggled at life. I still graduated with a double degree with law honors and I actually studied at Oxford on exchange. I was president of my law society. I got a grad job in a top tier law firm and a public service department, which are highly competitive for extremely high achieving normal people, let alone anyone with any disability. But all of these things almost could have got in your way as well to getting a diagnosis. That's a hundred percent true. Like there's no way anyone would have looked at my resume and how I am and thought you've got anything wrong. But Behind closed doors, I was not coping and I have got severe mental illnesses because of it, like my anxiety and my eating disorder. And my explanation of this is that if I'd had the supports, I would have been able to do the same amount of stuff I did, probably plus more or at least with less pain. And I wouldn't have had to develop comorbid mental illnesses that have now Mm. like plagued my life and really impacted my physical and mental health. And that's the problem with the lack of diagnosis and support and understanding and acceptance, blah, 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 is that the ramifications are you will suffer in some other way, whether that's mental illness, poverty, uh, lack of employment. Autistic people are the most underemployed, unemployed, which are both important terms because we're not only less employed, but even when we are employed, it's at a way less level than our capacity in the whole population. Like- It's crazy. Yeah. What are your methods now that you are a parent and you have little control over the noise and the other sensory experiences around you? What are your kind of methods to overcome that or to deal with that overstimulation and sensory overload? Yeah, absolutely. Great question and something I'm still trying to deal with. But first of all, have a good partner. (laughs) Because I'm very lucky my partner has like no sensory issues. So I can easily sub out anytime I want, knowing if I'm overwhelmed, he'll step in and never make me feel bad about it. Yeah. Um, but back to the question, <laughs> um, sensory stuff. So uh, sensory stuff is a big deal for me, especially, I, I, weirdly, I've been less affected by physical sensory issues with him, which I'm surprised at. I don't know whether that's like a mother nature thing for me. Did but you breastfeed? Yes. So, and I have a bit of a, bo- a bee in my bonnet about that. So I desperately wanted to breastfeed. My mum's a midwife and a nurse and she actually did her midwifery at, while I was at law school at the same university. So I actually found her midwifery far more fascinating than law and paid a lot of attention knowing I wanted kids one day. Anyway, so I really wanted to breastfeed and thanks to being a bit older and having friends that had recently had kids, one of my best friends, she said to me when I got pregnant, she's like, I really regret not spending more time in pregnancy researching sleep and breastfeeding because she was completely focused as naturally we all are on the birth experience, even though that's only like a day or two. And then she had the following part that she was like, what do I do? And I'm now also too tired to fucking research it, (laughs) which is the best advice I've ever received, to be honest. Um, So I spent my entire pregnancy and a little bit of before I even conceived 
researching sleep and breastfeeding. So I was so ready. I had a breast reduction when I was like 19 because I had huge boobies and they were giving me pain and one of them was longer than the other, which now I know is breast hyperplasia, which basically means you have very little breast tissue and a lot of fatty tissue. It's got nothing to do with weight. I had that issue when I was skinny AF. And those women tend to really struggle to produce milk. So I had a severe undersupply. I expressed colostrum. I had lactation consultants from day dot. I was so ready to know what to ask for. I had, you know, the spectra, you know, the blue one, the fancy one. I I was ready. Like if anyone's going to breastfeed easily, it was going to be me. But that's not how it works. And after going on like double dose of the meds you can take to do it and trying like a thousand different things that they say helps your supply. I almost killed myself for a month. And by the end of it, the most milk I made in a 24 hour period was like three meals. Oh yeah. So so that I hit a point then where I was like, I've given it my all and then some, I am now okay with the decision to formula feed. And it shouldn't have had to be that I killed myself before that was okay. And that really pisses me off anyway. But uh, yeah, the sensory stuff was not a huge problem for me. Um, I didn't really love the feeling of breastfeeding, but I loved the bond. So I kind of tolerated the physical discomfort. And that's, that's, I don't want to, I just want to preface that with like sensory issues. You can't choose to tolerate them or not. So like, because my physical sensory stuff isn't very severe, I can choose to tolerate it. Yeah. Whereas sound sensitivity, I have less control over. So I have multiple noise cancelling headphones around my house, uh, which is expensive to invest in. I have these things called loops, L-O-O-P, and they're like an earplug, but you can get two different types. One, it's like noise cancelling called quiet loops, I think. And the other one is what you can wear, but still hear people. So it dims the external Ah, noises, but but you you can can still still communicate, which is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, Because I struggle to pay attention to when I'm speaking to people, if there's background noise. Um, so that can be really helpful too. Those are my absolute number one tips for noise. Physical touch, not that I've had an issue, would be just finding, like, for instance, there's so much stuff about baby carrying. I couldn't baby carry. I wanted to, and I had multiple wraps. I've got the Ergo 360 and uh, Moby wrap and all that. But one, I have chronic pain and shoulder and mm. wrist issues. So doing that was hard. But two, it just made me hot. I'm a hot person. I hate sweating and just too like, much. No, couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So, and, but my son was fine. Like he's very affectionate, great secure attachment. That's not affected anything. So that, I mean, it's great to do those things, but just, I feel like giving your leeway to just do what you need to do to survive Absolutely. and thrive is so important. Neurodivergent, neurotypical, any mum out there. Yeah, you just doesn't do even what matter you about the, the labels don't matter. Yeah. Do, you do you. And the thing with me is that I just feel like the labels are so validating and they give me a tool to say, I need this because blah. Whereas, yeah. um, and that you don't need that. That's just a personal preference for me. And it also makes people like doctors take you a bit more seriously, which is sad. Uh, the other thing is with noise, you know how they talk about, I'll just touch on SIDS. I'm very anxious. So I was like pro, pro following SIDS to the book. And when Leo came home, I barely lasted two weeks of him being in a bassinet in our room, like on the other side of the room, as far away as possible, because babies grunt and yeah, make noises. They need to get out. Yeah. You are already as a mother wired to be attuned to that. That's why women find it easier to wake up when babies cry in the night. Cause like where that's survival 101 on top of that, having sensory issues. Oh my God. 
No. So he went down the hall into his own crib after two weeks at home. So he was barely three weeks old. I really struggled when I first did it because I was like, oh, Sid say should be in the same room for at least six months, 12 if possible. But very quickly realized that it's the only way I was going to survive because I was not sleeping with him in my room. I'm that sensitive with noise. I like, I just couldn't do it. So I, and I, yeah, I, I don't have all the, the keys and everyone has different sensitivities, but I think the thing is, like we said before, just totally have your own back. And if you can't figure out how to manage it, find help because mental health OTs, psychologists, they're, they're all out there. Sometimes you don't even have to see them. Just go on social media. There's so much on social media. It's great. As parents, how should we raise our neurotypical kids to better understand and have greater compassion for neurodivergent kids? There, I said it perfectly. Good job. First of all, the fact that they're asking that question makes me not really worry about those people Yeah, <laughs> because I feel like they're probably pretty woke. <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't have the answer because I don't, I haven't experienced this myself, but if I had to say what I think could help, I think it would be similar to most marginalized intersectional like things is that the same as like raising your kids to not judge body size and to know that someone in a larger body is still a good person and doesn't, mean they're lesser in any way. It's the same thing, but that's a visible thing, right? So first of all, it's even recognizing neurodivergence, which to be honest, how are your kids going to do that when doctors can't do that? Like, (laughs) so don't put pressure on yourself there. I think it's more of a general, like just raise your kids to be good humans. And, And I'm not saying that to say people aren't doing that. I'm just saying that to say, I think if you don't focus on the specifics and just focus on if we raise our kids to be very accepting of diversity and differences and to show kindness and compassion, both for others, but really for themselves, because the more you externally display compassion, the more you actually have a nicer inner voice. And a lot of us with perfectionism and anxiety and other mental illnesses, we are the most critical of ourselves with very nasty inner critics. So it's really important to model that behavior to your kids. And I'm not a parenting expert. Imagine the rate of bullying, like how much that yes. would go down if everyone did more of that. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, that's actually exactly how it would help neurodiverse kids because I was extremely bullied at school. My mum, way more so than I, she had her head bashed against the wall. Hopefully she doesn't mind me sharing that. Like she was so traumatized and she's a lovely person. She's just of nerdy. She like, yeah. And I was bullied mostly for my weight, but I was probably like, I, I was called blondie in high school. Cause I was really gullible and naive. And I, I do understand sarcasm, but it's a very cognitive yeah. understanding, not an innate one. So I can understand it if I get the context and I know what it's about, but it's not a natural response for me to pick up on sarcasm. Do you struggle listening to me? I'm the most sarcastic person out there. No, 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 no. The more obviously sarcastic you are, the easier. And also if it's on a topic that I'm familiar with, then I totally get it. I got teased for having a skinny legs, really skinny legs. So I got called chicken legs. So I would wear socks and tights over the top so I wouldn't get teased. 
And now oh look at me. I'm God. flaunting these mofos See? around left, right and centre. Take Show that, those chicken legs. <laughs> I would have killed for chicken legs. But isn't that the most oh. ridiculous thing? I know, like, right? You can't, you can't, can't be good. You can't be right either no. way. No. You know when my kids come home from school, they're at ages where people can pick on people and they can say things. I, I give it no airtime. I always say just be kind and you need to apologise if you've hurt someone's feelings because imagine if they said that to you, how would you feel? There is just no place in society for bullying, whether it is an adult on social media or it is a child in the schoolyard. Yeah. And that right there, you're teaching your child, you're modeling and explaining and not just expecting them to know compassion Mm. and acceptance and kindness and empathy. You're literally teaching them to be empathetic, which I mean, kids need to be taught this stuff. Some of us aren't, don't have it more than others, but yeah, that's just so important. And I think would go a long way in helping everyone, not just the neurodiverse population. So hope that helps. <laughs> well, Annie, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. You've been an you absolute joy thank you for to having speak me. to. Oh, I love talking to you guys. It's so nice to chat to you after so many, so much listening. And Aww. you were a breath of fresh air when I was pregnant because you guys were just keeping it real. And now you can it. listen to yourself. Yay. <laughs> I will not do that. That's so weird. <laughs> no, you should. Sure. No, you do it. We, we try not to. I'll try my, not I'll to. I'll make my family do it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us, no Annie. No worries. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.